Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he pulled out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. They saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew of people and needed no one to bear witness about them because he himself knew what was in them. This is the word of God. Thank you, Maggie, and thank you for reading for us. And I'd like to see everyone at church, especially if you're new. Wonderful to see you here. My name is Huey. If we haven't met before, and uh, I'm uh, one of the ministers uh, here at this church. We'll be waiting for Brother John uh, open in front of you, and uh, we'll be having a look at uh, a short passage uh, in John uh, closely. But uh, uh, before we uh, have a look at uh, the things that are written there, uh, let me read us in. Our Father, um, John tells us in chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank You for this Word that You have sent to us. I thank You that uh, He reveals uh, Your glory to us. And so we pray this morning uh, that You will help us to see Him clearly. As we see him clearly, uh, that we might know and see you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, I don't know whether any, any of you have watched the, the movie called Spotlight before. Uh, how many of you have seen uh, Spotlight? Well, feel but feel much. It's not a very well known movie, uh, but, but it's a good movie. Um, I, I watched this movie with my wife a few years ago. If you haven't seen this movie, uh, it's a movie that tells the true story of a group of journalists working for the Boston Globe newspaper who call themselves the Spotlight Team. But it's not one of those uh, kind of light-hearted movies that you watch uh, just to unwind. For it tells the horrific true story of the Spotlight Team investigating suspicions of child sexual abuse by Roman Catholic priests in the city of Boston. 
it's a deeply disturbing story because uh, while the spotlight team begins uh, by investigating one particular priest, it turns out in the end that about 90 priests in the city of Boston were involved in the widespread and systematic abuse of children over many years. Obviously, when the Boston Globe ran the story in 2002, there was a huge public outcry and a pouring out of emotions that such a thing could happen. Sadly, uh, such a abuse hasn't only happened in the Roman Catholic Church, has it? It has happened in many other religious institutions around the world, including Protestant churches. But the great tragedy when things like this happen is that it is the very ones that people think ought to be close to God who put up barriers for people, preventing them meeting God by their unspeakable acts. Now, I want to suggest that this can be true of religion in general. That is, the religions of this world are very good at putting up barriers so that people find their hearts and meet God. Do you think that's true? Uh, you know, uh, it might be by putting up all sorts of religious rules and, and regulations and rituals so that people are made to feel like they need to jump through all kinds of hoops in order to meet God. It might be putting up circles and hierarchies so that people feel like they can't really know God and meet God unless they belong to uh, some specific group. It might be through sexual or financial scandals that group religious institutions in ways that repel people away from meeting God. But religion is very good at putting up these barriers, these obstacles in the meeting of God. It's no wonder that so many people are walking away from institutional religion. I think it's because um, all these people suddenly you know, don't believe in the existence of God anymore. Rather, it's that they feel that religious people or religion puts up too many barriers that prevent you from really meeting God. Do you think that's true? I wonder whether we as a church can sometimes be guilty of putting up these barriers and obstacles uh, to people meeting God as well. Uh, we'll be looking at the Gospel of John for a little while now, as uh, was mentioned. And last week we saw uh, Jesus' first sign of miracle uh, in the turning of the wine, uh, turning of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And uh, today we see another incident uh, towards the early part of Jesus' adult ministry where we start to see his glory as well. But the thing I want you to notice here is Jesus' attitude towards those who put up barriers to people meeting God. It's not just Jesus meek and mild. It is Jesus violent. You'll see there in the first few verses that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. You can see it there in the first few verses, don't you? 
temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship for the people of Israel. It was a place of deep spiritual significance because it was the one place on earth that God had promised to meet with his people. Further, uh, we're told in verse 13 that when Jesus goes to the temple, it's the time of the Passover, which was a major celebration where literally thousands of people would journey from all over Israel to come to the temple in Jerusalem. Imagine the people. Uh, it would have been, hands up if you went to the Ed Sheeran concert a few uh, weeks ago. A few of us, or one of us. Um, it, it, it would have been a bit like that. You know, people from all over the city, thousands of people uh, converging upon Olympic Park uh, to see this spectacle. It would have been of that magnitude. Yet, uh, you might know that the Passover had a particular significance. For it celebrated the salvation of God at Exodus. Uh, if you remember, that was the time when God passed over every Israelite home that had the blood of the Lamb painted on its doors, sparing the lives of their firstborn children. While God did not pass over uh, the houses of the Egyptians and killed every firstborn Egyptian in judgment. You see, the Passover was a huge celebration because Israel was reminded that God was now their God and they were his special people. And yet, uh, when Jesus comes to the temple, he is horrified. Why is he horrified? Uh, well, you can see there in verse 14, uh, he, he's horrified because he finds in the temple merchants who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons as well as money changers who are there you know, offering their foreign exchange services. In fact, he's so horrified that he becomes violent. In verse 15, he makes a whip and starts driving out the merchants and the animals and starts overthrowing the tables of the money changers so that the, the coins are flying everywhere. Clearly, anyone who says that Jesus cannot get angry or Jesus cannot be passionately to ideas or people have not read this verse, have they? But here's the meaning of the question. Why is Jesus angry here? Why does he act in this violent way? Well, I think, um, sorry to say this, but I think this is going to go against to think that way, don't we? That, you know, uh, these uh, merchants were overcharging for their services and kind of ripping people off. But that's not exactly what is said in the passage, is it? I mean, Jesus doesn't mention anything about the merchants, about the merchants being greedy or corrupt. And neither does John. In fact, I don't know whether you know, but selling animals was a legitimate business for temple operation to function. You know, lots of people would have traveled for days from all over Jerusalem, all 
so it would have been uh, unlikely that they brought their own animals to sacrifice at the temple. And so these merchants were actually providing a service so that people who couldn't bring their own animals could purchase one for sacrifice, Similarly, the money changers were providing a valuable service. For every Israelite was required by God's law to pay a temple tax, and the temple tax was collected in a particular currency. So you had to exchange your currency somehow in order to pay that temple tax. That God had commanded. And so if the problem was not one of greed or corruption, why does Jesus get so angry here? Well, I want you to see that the answer is right there in verse 16, where Jesus says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In other words, the problem was not that there were merchants selling animals. No, the real problem was that they were setting them inside the temple itself, which was meant to be the place where people could come to meet God, you see, and to finally praise God. And so the selling of animals in the temple would have been a great, great distraction to people coming and meeting God, you see. And you imagine the Oval Office. Uh, you know, the Oval Office is the place where the most powerful man on earth meets with different people. Uh, that's where he meets with heads of state. That's where he meets with royalty. That's where he meets with his advisors to uh, think about important issues with them. But imagine one day uh, a senior staff member at the White House uh, thinks that it's a good idea to set up a souvenir store you know, inside the, the Oval Office. And so as the President is funding these businesses that people are coming and going buying White House merchandise. You get the point, don't you? The temple was the one place on earth that God had promised to meet with his people. And yet, how can you meet with God's how can you meet with God if you have cows and sheep and pigeons running around everywhere? The sound of, of coins jangling everywhere. It would have been a huge distraction. And so Jesus acts in this way because he hates it when people are distracted from meeting God. He hates it when there are barriers and obstacles put in the way of people coming to know God and coming to meet God. The ways in which the church might distract people from meeting God. Uh, it might happen at the institutional level. Uh, any of you uh, would have heard that recently the majority of bishops in the house, uh, in the Church of England rather, decided to bless same sex marriage uh, in their churches. It's been all over the papers. Could it be that what they have done is cause a huge distraction from people coming to understand the gospel and meeting God? Or think about the scandals that gripped the church 
whenever well-known Christian figures fall to sexual sin uh, or financial misconduct. Sadly, such things seem to happen all too often. Could it be that the people who are meant to help God's people meet God are sometimes the very ones who distract God's people or who distract people away from meeting God himself? that some of the things we do can distract people from hearing God's word. And that's why we, we ask Wayne to stop operating the coffee cart when the gathering begins, because we don't want it to be a distraction to people listening to what God has to say in His word. Jesus is so zealous in removing every obstacle to God meeting his people. For that is the very reason why Jesus has come into this world. I don't know whether you noticed, but John's gospel is all about God coming to meet us rather than us trying to reach out to God to be here. Such is God's passion to meet his people. In the introductory prologue, God, God is the one who takes on human flesh to come and meet us. In the calling of the disciples, Jesus is the one who goes around finding his disciples so that God can meet them. In fact, in our passage, we'll see in verse 17 that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples recall this event and they remember a verse from from Psalm 69, which says these words. You can see it there, don't you? Zeal for your house will consume you. You see it there? Now, Psalm 69 is all about King David, who is so zealous for God's house that he consumes him, even in the face of terrible opposition. But the word consume mean uh, one of two things, can't it? That it can mean either to be absorbed by something, uh, which is what happens when Jesus feeds the temple. Uh, he's fully absorbed in removing any obstacles to meeting God. But the word consume can also mean to destroy, can't it? Which is ultimately what happens to Jesus later in the gospel. It is precisely because Jesus is so zealous that you and I meet God that he is destroyed at the cross. But he dies in our place for our sins so that every obstacle might be treated 
Kristus dia kembali kepada Darius. It's not about rules, regulations. It's not about belonging to certain groups and hierarchies. It's not about God who hides behind such things because he does not want to be known. Rather, Christianity is all about Jesus. He comes alive, he comes down, and he fills the passports to the blind. So that we might live In the next few verses, you can see, start to see uh, the fallout from Jesus' violent behavior. Uh, if you have a look at verse 18, you can see that the Jewish leaders question Jesus uh, as they ask him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, I don't know about you, but I think that's a very interesting question to ask Jesus at this point. If somebody comes into a public space and causes a public disturbance, what would you do? Perhaps you might call the police so that they can come and lock the person up in a cell. Perhaps you might call an ambulance so that they can take the person away to a mental institution. But here it's interesting. Because the Jewish leaders seem to know that there is something more to Jesus. That he's not just a troublemaker or someone with a, you know, someone who's a lunatic. No, they think that there is something more to him. Perhaps they're thinking about Malachi 2, which was read to us from the Old Testament, which has you know, the Messiah coming to his temple to the coming of a messenger. And so they come thinking, well, John the Baptist uh, has come as a messenger. Maybe the person who comes after him really is the Messiah who has come to his temple. Could it be that Jesus is the Messiah or the Lord that Malachi was talking about? And so they ask him to perform a sign or a miracle to prove that he really is the Messiah has every right to do the things that he has just done. But what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't immediately give them what they ask for, does he? Uh, so Jesus is not going to Jesus is not about to come and perform in mercy for these people doing whatever these Jewish leaders ask him to do. Rather, he gives them a riddle. So he says in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, for those who have eyes to see, Jesus is saying, I will give you a sign, and it will happen in the future when I am raised from the dead. It's a bit of a challenge to the Jewish leaders, isn't it? Destroy my body. I will raise it up again and show you that I really am the Christ, the Son of God, who has all authority in heaven and earth. It sounds a bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi, doesn't it? He says, he 
as you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. But that's not precisely what Jesus says in verse 24. For notice that he doesn't say, destroy my body, and in three days my body will rise from the dead. Rather, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. See, the astonishing thing about Jesus is saying is that he has come to replace the bricks and mortar temple that stood in Jerusalem as a pointed place to meet God. To replace that with the ultimate temple, which is his body. In other words, if you want to meet God, Thank you. 
this is what someone who has already put your trust in Jesus. Then you come into the same question, like, which means Jesus. So when you go, are you going to be Jesus?
Jesus had uh, risen from the dead, that the disciples not only remember that Jesus said the words, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, and begin connecting that to his death and resurrection. But they understand that the Old Testament scriptures have been saying all along that it is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, who would one day suffer and die, only to rise again to rule the world. And so they believe that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, who has come to the world. But how does this happen? Well, you might remember that it is only after Jesus' resurrection from the dead that he pours out his promise to his disciples. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to point us to the scriptures and shine a light on Jesus so that people will be convinced that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, I began this sermon by speaking about an image called Spotlight. But it's often said that the Holy Spirit has a spotlight on himself. That is, just like a spotlight shines a, a bright light onto the stage so that you can see the main character clearly, when the Holy Spirit works in your heart, it's like especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was so zealous that we believe that he was willing to consume the cross to remove all obstacles from him, especially the obstacle of our invitation to sin. And Father, we pray that you would help us not to take these things for granted. We pray that your spirit would so work in us We pray that as we go to him, 